Welcome to Finest Work Songs. My name is Matt. My name is also Matt. On Finest Work Songs, we like to take a classic album and talk about it, dissect it, see if it still holds up. See, maybe it doesn't hold up. If not, why is that the case? But really just take an opportunity to reflect on some of the great works of musical art through the years. Before we begin, I don't want you to be alarmed. I know you get a little nervous with being snuck up on. Studio audience, join us in welcoming to Finest Work Songs, Jeff Wood. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Jeff and I go way, way back, all the way to junior high track through high school, college, playing music together, moving down here to North Carolina together. So we have quite the history that still continues on to this moment here on Finest Work Songs. Jeff, thanks for being on here today. Thank you for having me. And it was a very touching introduction. Thank you. Well, <laughs> you mentioned track. Did you do and field? I was the field. Yeah, he was the field. Matt was the track. <laughs> Until he convinced me to be part of the track one time. It did not go over very well. Uh, yeah, well, you tell him about that. So I'm, I was a high jumper. Matt's getting ready to run the... In middle school, it was the 200, 200 hurdles. hurdles. Yeah. yeah. And he had just found out that because of the, the number of runners out there, he was going to have to run by himself. So he comes over to me. This is my introduction to <laughs> being convinced to do too many things that I shouldn't have done in my life. Um, he convinces me that I should come out there and run with him, run the hurdles. That way we can work as a team. Jeff was so nice. There were three hurdlers and me. Okay. And so I was nervous. I needed some backup. So I employed Jeff. <laughs> We get up to the line and they say, well, we only have four lanes of hurdles, so someone's going to have to run by themselves. Things have switched up a little bit. I'm the guy running by myself. <laughs> Stevens is in the heat. <laughs> and so he has to run hurdles for the very first time. Never run them before. Oh, wow. Or Never. since. <laughs> yeah, or since. Yeah, I don't know how to get over these things. All I'm thinking is like, that jackass Stevens. <laughs> so I'm out there. I'm like, okay, I got, I got this. I'm going to do this. You know, I get him in the starter block. That race was so hard, 200 at a sprint and doing hurdles. By the time I hit that first 100 meters, my legs were gone. I hit every hurdle after that. And I remember looking over and seeing like Stevens and a couple other guys going, come on, come on, you can do it. And I just wanted to be like, screw y'all. I mean, I'm running at this point because the last part of the 100 goes by the stands. Oh. So now not only am I by myself, now I've got the entire team on my left and the stands on my right. And I'm just like <laughs> clipping hurdles, just wheeled over the, the finish line. <laughs> <laughs> also, you think that at that point, you would say, this guy Stevens is bad news. <laughs> right. And yet here we are. <laughs> You've old, had a lot of chances to say that. I have, I tell old you. jackass Stevens. <laughs> I feel bad because if I leave you, I'm like, who's he going to have? That's true. You know, to talk him out of this stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, man. Well, well, look, I went on to have a successful track career that you went did. into college. So yeah. if it weren't for you... That never would have yeah. happened, so I have you to thank. <laughs> Jeff, what album are we reviewing here today on Finest Work Songs? We're going to talk about Octoon Baby by U2. We are coming up on 30 years for this album next year. I look forward to some ridiculous reissues that I get suckered into buying. <laughs> oh, you mean I can have what I love, but better? Oh, there's an extended guitar solo in this song. Yeah. That's worth 600 bucks. Let's do this. 
But it is an incredible album, and we could talk about both where it lies in terms of albums of the time, as well as where it stands in the pantheon of U2 records. But for us, we always like to start with our memories of an album. So, Jeff, why don't you start us off? What is your memory of Octung Baby? I'm switching up. Oh, man. Here we go. go. You're still keeping you on your toes. Well, let's see. I would have been 15. I don't have a set time or date that I sort of remember getting this, but it happened one or two ways. I either walked up to the Kempsville Shopping Center to Birdland Music and got it, or my mom probably got it for me for Christmas. But my first memory is seeing the cover of this album and just being blown away, realizing very quickly that this is no longer the U2 that I knew. I mean, Bono's wearing makeup. Adam Clayton is naked in here somewhere. Uh, there's cross-dressing. There's a freaking cobra on the front of this thing. Uh, It's no longer these Irish guys with heavy American influences in the middle of the desert. You're Mm -hmm. not seeing these pictures anymore. And I think you immediately realize something is very different about this. This is no longer your mother's U2. Listening to that first track, Zoo Station, as it comes in with that weird guitar and that banging, you're just like, what is about to freaking happen on this thing? And I'm sure I was with my friend Jeff Little as we listened to this. But yeah, that's kind of my first memory of of this album. It really shook things up, as we'll talk about in terms of the music scene and also expectations. We are just into a new decade. The Berlin Wall has fallen down. There's there's so much that this album marks and is marked by. Matt, what about you? What's your memory of this? Sort of like you, Jeff. I I don't remember exactly when I got it. I feel like it was a Christmas present. But I remember taking the CD before even listening to it over to my friend Stan's house and playing it you know, for the first time at his house because we were both really into music and, and really curious about what this sounded like. Because up to this point, I guess we had been in bands where we had probably covered old older U2 songs. When you say in bands, yes, was Stan in uh, Technical Difficulties? Stan was the drummer in pretty much all my high school bands. Okay, yeah. so Stan was the drummer in Technical <laughs> Difficulties. Check. Still Life. You got it. Troubleshooter. Bingo. The Funkadelic Chipmunks? You nailed it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you got all four. <laughs> Any more? That was all for high school. Okay. Oh, so wait, what was college then? We'll have to wait on that one. Stan, Stan was not the drummer in college because in college, you guys went in, your separate in college ways. we went our separate ways. We went through creative differences, as in we went to different colleges. Stan, yeah, Stan was, we played music together, middle school and high school. And, and even though we had really had different music tastes, we respected each other's musical taste so much. I mean, he would have been excited that I was excited by you too. Just like I would have been excited that, you know, a new Exodus album and come out. Or, yeah. Did he have a double kick drum? He did for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He did have a double kick drum. You're trying to cover some Con L song and he's got a double kick drum <laughs> trying That's to push right. it in a different direction. No, we're doing super long version of Metallica's one. <laughs> no, we're doing U2's one. <laughs> <laughs> so up to this point, I was a huge U2 fan already. Loved Joshua Tree, even though I was probably a little late getting exposed to the Joshua Tree, but loved Rattle and Hum, particularly in the movie, would watch that movie over and over again. And so it was amazing to me and kind of mind-blowing that you know, within a span of a, a couple of years, they kind of go from, you know, because I know Joshua Tree came out in 87, but I felt like they toured for years on that. Between that and Rattle and Hum and then Octung Baby, it just seemed like such a wide departure. Like Jeff said, when you hear the opening notes of, of Zoo Station, con- contrasting that slow build to the slow build to where the streets have no name. Mm-hmm. And it's just like 
two completely different bands. It, it blew my mind then, and, and you know, rehashing it over the last week, it, it still does. What about you, Matt? What's your what's your memory of, of Octung Baby? Early professional life. I had a couple of roommates, a couple of bachelors just hanging out, having a great time, lots of parties, living that high life. One day, I go to answer the door, and there's a baby left <laughs> <laughs> on the doorstep. <laughs> and apparently, it belongs to one of my roommates, who, who is an actor. We had been asked by our actor buddy to receive a package, and he said to keep it a secret. We just thought, well, obviously, this baby is the package. So here we are, a couple of bachelors, trying to figure out what to do with a baby. I didn't know how to change a diaper or give a baby a bath. The next day, these two guys arrive at the apartment, and they say they're there for the package. So we give them the baby. We're happy to be done with it. But then when we come home from work later that day, our landlady is tied up but they brought the baby back. I found out what happened. The package was heroin and the heroin got delivered and we just set it aside and the drug dealers came for the heroin. That's why they were there. These guys were drug dealers. Classic mix up. Oh yeah. I mean, (laughs) babies, heroin, it's all fine. We just need to get it sorted out. Right. So our actor friend comes back. He says he doesn't know anything about the heroin, but it turns out his friend was the one who arranged all this. Mm -hmm. So now we've got this baby and we've got, a friend who's in trouble. And so we're just three men and, and this child trying to get out of this mess. And so because it's the eighties, we confront the drug dealers ourselves Mm -hmm. and we're able to prove our innocence because of recording technology and the dealers get arrested. We thought everything was fine, but then the mom shows up to take the baby to London. And then we realize how desperately we miss this baby. Mm. We rush to the airport and we find that the plane has taken off. It was a pretty sad ride back to the apartment. But when we get there, we find the mom and the baby and we invite her to live with us. And because it's the 80s, she says yes. <laughs> and so we get to all raise this baby. And to celebrate, we ordered some Wiener Schnitzel from the place down the street. When the delivery guy came, he was this German kid. He just opened the door and he said, Achtung, baby! <laughs> And that reminded me of this U2 album. Yeah. And so then we went down to the store and picked it up. It's weird that you had to take like the law into your own hands. If only like you had known like, I don't know, like a, a Magnum PI or some guy who was in like a police academy. You know, maybe you could have gotten some outside help there. That's true. That movie's insane. Why is every 80s movie cocaine or some really hard hitting drug, drug dealers? Yeah. <laughs> This has basically turned into me picking crazy 80s movies, you know, because what I talk about... Which isn't that hard. Yeah, they're nuts. (laughs) My memory of this is very similar to y'all's. I even remember seeing the world premiere. Remember that? They'd have the world spinning. It would be like world premiere of this video. And so you feel so excited about what's going to happen. My eyes could not get wide enough to take in what I was seeing. Mm -hmm. And I just remember that spinning camera down between their legs and up their back and like all around and seeing each one of them and the look on their faces. Yeah, we know. (laughs) We know that this is way different Mm -hmm. than you're expecting. There are moments in my life when I've heard albums and tracks that feel like they change everything. Mm -hmm. It opens up a new era or category of music that I hadn't experienced.
you got some industrial sounds, you got some bleeps and bloops going on there. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not where the streets have no name. And that seemed to be their M.O. We're ready for what's next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even even the beginning lines kind of announce what's happening. At this point in their career, they reportedly were almost breaking up. Why? Yeah. Rattle and hum and a combination of their touring, they didn't feel that they were prepared for. They felt thrust into the spotlight mm-hmm. as they toured relentlessly through Joshua Tree because that had how many hits on it? Four or five? Yeah. A side A? Yeah. You know, exactly. it was kind of just a hit in and of itself. And then as they tour, I think it was Adam, he said we went from being an arena band to being a stadium band, but this was before video enforcement. It was just us in a stadium. So out of our depth, not quite proficient enough to be consistent, not enough material to do a stadium show. And it seems like they had plenty of material. Yeah. But, you know, I think there was also a considerable amount of backlash. I remember being in a movie theater and the trailer for Rattle and Hum coming on. Mm-hmm. And it was like the most almost messianic thing. Yeah. It's like we, we knew they were the greatest band in the world, but it was being thrust upon everybody. So I think there was a fair amount of backlash against Rattling Hum, against their whole persona. I'm sure they felt it too. And so mm-hmm. if you're experiencing that and you're still trying to push the limits, you're going to want to take a step back and do something completely different. Obviously, Octoon Baby is a, a response to everything that had happened before. Yeah. Somewhere in there, Bono had to sort of come out on stage and basically said something to the effect of, this is the end of you two as you know it kind of thing. And it started all these rumors like, oh gosh, are they breaking up? Are they breaking up? Mm -hmm. I mean, in his mind, it was like, we're stopping. We're going to disappear for a little bit. This is such the um, great example of the artist coming to terms with his work and how it's not pushing him anymore. And Mm -hmm. everything's been done, not for his own pleasure, but to benefit something else mm-hmm. that's out there. And, and clearly they had to like sort of bring the circle tighter and figure things out. And that clearly led to some disagreements on where the direction of the band was going to go. They seem to look back on Rattle and Hum with regret, but mainly in the way that it was portrayed. They said, you know, we were having a great time. We weren't trying to be the Messiahs. Bono at one point said, it looked to people like we were trying to introduce you, America, to your own music. And he's like, that's a shame because that's not what they mm-hmm. were trying to do. Mm-hmm. They were just trying to honor this and have a good time. As I'm watching this documentary, it seemed that they only knew how to look serious. They only yeah. knew mm-hmm. how to be like, you know, stone faced and Joshua mm-hmm. Tree. Yeah. They only yeah. knew that look. This required a, probably a little bit more, more levity to lighten up the mood because that was the mood. This isn't a full album that they're doing. It's kind of a tour mm-hmm. slash album mm-hmm. and they're just experimenting and let them go in that direction and let's not take it so serious. They're putting such emphasis on sort of American music. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, I don't care about American music. I want to hear about, you know, the sort of Irish fight. And, you know, that's why I was so sort of brought in with like war. That was sort of my first introduction to them. Yeah. But to your point, seeing the edge sort of there in a documentary playing, you know, all this stuff. And as a kid who just was trying to soak in anything the edge did. It was fantastic. But yeah, yeah, it kind of missed the mark maybe a little bit. They did do the rooftop concert though. Mm -hmm. You're saying we're like the Beatles if you do that. Right. Yes. So maybe that was a little too far. Yeah. Well, when you talk about the the seriousness of it too, but like there's the scene in in the movie Rattle and Hum where they're at Graceland and Larry Mullen Jr. is like crying. Yeah. Which which is touching, but it's also, they left that in there for a reason. That probably could have not been in there. And you start to add all those things together. You sort of see where people are like, oh, here they come again, serious about everything. And and they're they're telling us why we should appreciate our own music kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah. 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 
and then they, they go back to Ireland and Bono felt that they weren't really welcome there. I'm paraphrasing, but he's saying like the Irish are saying you were this post-punk phenomenon. Great job. Go do the Joshua Tree. We'll even stand behind you with that. But now you're becoming this sort of Americana band. We don't know what you are anymore. Mm -hmm. And so what are you doing back here in Ireland? What do they do from here? They're not sure what their identity is anymore. Yeah. They took some time off and then they gathered together in Berlin. And this is after the Berlin Wall came down. And I think there was a lot of struggles there. That's that's sort of, you, you hear about Bono and Daniel Lenoir mm-hmm. getting into it as they're trying to decide what the direction of this thing is. And it, a lot of bad voodoo, I guess, was happening in that place. And they headed back to Dublin. My impression of this was they recorded this in East Berlin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like that, growing right. up, that was the story. Yeah. And everything from the sound, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost like you couldn't get this sound, which is kind of ridiculous. It's the instruments that you play right. and record. <laughs> it's not like they were employing actual machinery in East Berlin. <laughs> but it felt like, oh, they only sound like this because they're in East Berlin. They immerse themselves in East Germany. In yeah. Germany. And then we find out they're actually recording most of this back in, <laughs> yeah. back in Dublin. In the Germans' defense, I mean, at this point, the wall had come down, and they think they're just going to get, like, a healthy dose of David Hasselhoff. (laughs) So they're really excited about that. You too. Oh, you too. Great. Now they're going to tell us how to like German music. (laughs) (laughs) Das ist eine cool. (laughs) Can you imagine if they're, like, standing there, like, in the Joshua Tree, but they're in a beer hall wearing, like, the lederhosen? (laughs) Same pose as Joshua Tree cover. It's like, Achtung, baby. (laughs) But to me, I mean, even visually, like, you're looking, flipping through, like, the, the album notes and stuff, the photos, it's a departure, but it's also... The weird bridge between Joshua Tree, Unforgettable Fire, Pop Mart, and everything else that would Mm -hmm. come. So, listeners, Jeff is an accomplished professional photographer. So, Jeff, what's your impression of this from the photographer's standpoint? Yeah, so at the time I was 15 or 16, uh, but even, you know, back then, visuals had such a huge impact on me. So, I'm seeing this stuff for the first time, and, you know, looking back now... As a photographer, I'm, I'm seeing these images, and to me, the photographer, who is Anton Gorbin, used a, a thing called cross-process. The quick gist of that is, is you take your film after you've shot it, and you develop it in the wrong chemicals. It's uncontrollable. It shifts the color. It makes the blacks more crunchy or more contrasty. It's basically like the foundation is there. The images that you shot are there. The cropping's all there. But it just takes this stuff on top and just shifts it so far to the other direction. That's what they were doing with this album art, is they're showing us what you're about to listen to. The foundations of you 2 are there. The rhythm section is there. But it's all this stuff on top that is so different. It's, so, it's shifted, right? They're experimenting. This stuff is swirling around on top. And so I think that's what they were doing. They were giving us an introduction into what we were about to listen to with, with the way they did these images. Like, like you mentioned, it's no longer that iconic band image of the four of them sitting there. It's oddly cropped stuff with a snake and a bull. And, you know, again, the guys are cross-dressing inside and uh, smoking. You know, I know, I think we all Lots know Bonnie smoked, but you never really saw that. Lots of pictures of smoking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like I mentioned, it's, it's in the Middle East, which just adds a sense of mystery to it. You know, their introduction started immediately with their album cover and then goes into Zoo Station. And then you're hearing about how, they're, you know, he's ready for the laughing gas. He's ready for what's next. He's mm-hmm. ducking and diving, you know. He's like, here we come and you better be ready. Ah, tum. We're coming. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's great. So buy the wrong chemicals. He'd take his film and just like put it in milk. Yep, he'd put or, it in milk. Or orange uh, juice. <laughs> he'd take his film down to the melting pot. Here we go. <laughs> Here we go. I'm going to need a table and some time to myself. Can you cut the lights? I mean, the lights are really dark. They're like, well, sir, it's already dark because it's a very romantic place. Yeah. If you go to melting pot as a single person, do you think they'd see you? Yeah, but they'd be like really snarky about it. I think they'd be really suspicious because who goes to melting pot by themselves? Who goes to melting pot anyway? <laughs> I don't know. I think I think I think you did some research the other night. It sounds like a lot of people go to melting pot. I did look up after our Valentine's Day episode. Mm-hmm. Melting pot is a hot reservation in Raleigh. <laughs> I just think it'd be funny to be really creepy and sit in the corner dipping things and just watching everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Slowly sipping on cheese. <laughs> That's right. Uh, just doing that and making eyes at other people as they're like watching you by yourself. Yeah. And they're on this romantic dinner. Oh, gross. Melting pot. Get out of here. <laughs> Should we uh, hear from our sponsor now? Who is it this week? Melting pot. Oh, crap. Save the sessions, you know, and if we want to be overly dramatic, save the band even. To pick up, we we left them at leaving Americana. We left them at their desire to leave Americana, not feeling at home in Ireland, not feeling welcome in America anymore. Heading east to Germany in their time off before they reconvene. Edge starts listening to a lot of like machine age music, heavily influenced by beats. And then Larry Mullen Jr., the drummer, He's over listening to Cream and classic rock. So he's going down this direction further into rock and roll Mm -hmm. and how he does things. And then you've got The Edge, who's taking an approach to writing that involves machines. (laughs) You know, so (laughs) Larry's feeling maybe even left out or not knowing what his place is in the band. And it's just not working. It sounds like Berlin was not a good experience for them. Jeff, as you mentioned, like Daniel Lanois and Bono are getting into it with each other. And apparently during Mysterious Ways, as they were working on that, they came to a spot where Edge had worked on a bridge, and there's a chord structure where Daniel Lanois, who's their producer, said, let's just mess around with that structure. It was that structure that became one. So that seemed to be the thing where they all felt like, okay, we still got it. We're a band again, kind mm-hmm. of thing. Bono has a great quote, you have to reject one expression of the band first before you get to the next expression. In between, you have nothing. You have to risk it all. And I just think that's a scary place to be when your identity has been a part of this band that becomes so huge. Mm -hmm. You're a unit, you're a group, and you depend on one another. And when you feel like you can't rely on one another and not knowing if you'll even continue or how to continue, I imagine it was probably feeling pretty insecure for, for those guys. Putting aside sort of their music relationship, I can't imagine how hard that would be just with their personal relationships. Because if you read up on these guys, you quickly know that they've known each other since what they were 
15, 16 mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think Bono was the Edge's best man. Adam Clayton was Bono's best man in his wedding. I mean, these guys go back a mm-hmm. long time and all of a sudden now you're sitting there in Berlin and, and things aren't going well and you're having conversations of, you know, two guys want to go one direction, two guys want to go this other direction and they're coming to blows and, you know, just the sort of hit that must have been on their personal lives on just sort of the uncertainty of like, half my life has been with these guys. Yeah. And all of a sudden, this might actually just go away. They had probably a really hard decision to make at that point. So Daniel Lenoir is their producer. He is someone who I was first introduced to by U2, but his two albums with Emmylou Harris, I think are her best work. By some, he is seen as resurrecting Bob Dylan's career, which we don't have our Bob Dylan expert, Dwayne Davis here, but I'd love to hear what he says about that. Dwayne would probably say, you'd have to kill him before you resurrect him, and he can't be killed. <laughs> but <laughs> I could go on and on about Daniel Lemoyne. If you listen to his other work, it's clear his production is a huge part of this album. Mm-hmm. Sonically, you hear stuff in, in a lot of his other work that you say, oh my gosh, that has a similar feel to the U2 stuff. Part of that is that sort of very airy guitar and these little mm-hmm. things coming in and out and very spacious sounding uh, recordings. But also, he's an accomplished guitarist. He's incredible. And he's the one playing the lick on one. Really? Yeah. The opening thing, that's Lamois. Is it getting better? And so that was what he played, and Bono asked him to play that on the album. And then the edge from there built on top of that. You always imagine, oh, that's the edge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Writing the song, it's like, no, that was Lane Wall's bit. <laughs> the thing about One, though, I mean, it became such a huge hit. I mean, it's got to be one of their three most signature oh, yeah. songs. I never really got tired of it. Lyrically, it's you know one of those songs that could, and I'm sure has been used for a million campaigns, yeah. you know, a million rallies and, and, and to get people united but it it doesn't necessarily come across as like hokey in that way which is a testament to their ability to pull that together one is a fantastic song uh hearing more about how it came about too it just adds so much weight to that song but i remember hearing it for the first time and being like huh her because (laughs) if you take the song on its own it's fantastic right but you've, with this album cover, you've introduced me to something that I am not sure what's going to happen. Yeah. And then you start with Zoo Station and, you're, and it's like, you know, you're like, what is this? And then even better than the real thing. I mean, that opening riff mm-hmm. back when we were playing music, anytime we were writing, all I wanted to do was somehow emulate yep. that riff. Mm-hmm. And then you go into one and one feels safe to me. Yeah. It mm-hmm. feels like the old stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you start seeing it, you know, in Bank of America and, you know, all these other <laughs> things. And it's like, and Stevens, you and I have this conversation a lot, you know, kids from the nineties, it was all about like authenticity and, you know, you're not, I don't want to use the word sell out, but you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. this, we are artists, we're creating to create, and this is who we are. Mm-hmm. And I don't care what anybody else thinks. This is what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. I get it because it was their springboard into Octoon Baby. It's what saved the band. And I get that. And I, Again, on its own, fantastic song, but I was like taken back. I kind of thought, what? wait, where's all the crazy stuff that makes me uncomfortable? Yeah, no, that's a great point. It's not representative of the album. Like you said, it's mm-hmm. a bridge to the album. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for the A&R guys, they hear a hit 
Oh, yeah. Right. And, 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 absolutely. and it is a very safe song. You don't even know what it's about. Yeah. People could put this on a mixtape as a love song. Unification, mm-hmm. like you said, it could be in Bank of America. How would you like your change, sir? I'd like it in ones. The song kicks in. I mean, it could just be whatever you want. Yeah, yeah I saw that people would like write Bono and be like, "We played this at our wedding," and he was like, "You're mad. This is about like splitting up. This is yeah. about like this is not about <laughs> staying together." <laughs> Next track we're going to cover is "Until the End of the World." Looking at this album as like a, a bridge between old U2 and new U2, there's still like the, the elements of of religion that mm-hmm. sort of thread through here. And, and I mean, until the end of the world, uh, it's from the perspective of Judas. Is that what yeah, that's that right. it's supposed to be? Mm-hmm. They're still dealing with those kinds of themes, even through this album. It's almost like a conversation between... Mm-hmm. Judas and Jesus with Judas speaking and he's talking about like first the last supper then they have a music break and then he's talking about like the garden of Gethsemane and then a music break and then Judas's suicide which is just an interesting angle first of all finding out what the lyrics referred to the feel of it really matches it it's just got this angst to it again there's there's not to keep harking on like the combination of old and new but even in this another U2 song about Jesus (laughs) Yeah, but on this one they even use the phrase "going down on me," right? And you're just like, "Oh, like you know, this is this isn't you know forty, not quoting scripture, right?" I mean, this is a little edgier here. And writing from the perspective of Judas, yeah, you know, like right, what? that's edgy to say the least. Mm-hmm. Not the YouTube that we expected. Again, seeing them live for the Zoo TV tour, and you know, some of these lyrics that you just brought up, like. All of a sudden, his movements and lyrics got a little sleazy in there every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And like the way he'd move with the camera on stage and stuff. And you're like, again, it's just this full 180 turn to what mm-hmm. they were doing, which I, I thought was really risky and awesome. You're an accident waiting to happen. You're a piece of glass left there on the beach. This song has not been favored critically. I've always loved this song. Like yeah. That was one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this one, because I think it's so catchy. And it's funny, because then reading up on this, 
Steve Lillywhite, the producer, was brought in to bring some fresh ears in on it. He had said that the band hated the song, and as they worked on it, it said the Americans had heard it and said, that's your radio song right there. (laughs) (laughs) Which is funny, because I'm like, yeah, I love it. (laughs) I think because this was less industrial. Mm -hmm. It doesn't fit with Zoo Station or The Fly. Mm -hmm. It sonically fits in the album, but it doesn't push that envelope. Sounds to me like it could have also been on like Rattle and Hum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like almost, like, I almost wonder if they were, had worked on it you know, since that time and just kind of carried it over. Never never quite figured out how to finish it up. But yeah, I, I love this song. Maybe it's because I'm American. That's probably it. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, you saw them when they came to Virginia Beach, well, where we grew up, but really they came to Hampton Coliseum. This was March of 92. Yeah. So I had, I had just turned 16. So I'm driving at this point. And now we've got tickets and I got to convince my mom to let me drive <laughs> 30 <laughs> minutes away in, you know, through the tunnel. There's, you know, Virginia yeah. just got all these tunnels and bridges and through the tunnel and it, over to uh, the Hampton Roads. And me and Jeff are going to do it. And then found out, uh, you know, other friends, you guys were going. Yep. Uh, Which other, did not help your case. But yeah, it probably didn't help my case. <laughs> I don't know how we convinced her, but she lets us go. Uh, and Jeff and I get to the show and our seats are like either the first or second row on the riser. So we are, we are just above everybody on the floor. So we're we're kind of far back, but there's nothing obstructing our view. I mean, there's cars hanging from the the (laughs) ceiling. There's a huge walkway where Bono's sort of coming out. We must've been the second row because I remember there's some people in front of us and they were kind of punk rock looking. After the opening band was done, they just sort of left and we were like, whoa. What? Why are they leaving? This is like you too, you know. It was the Pixies. The yep. Pixies were opening up for you too, uh, and then you know later in life I became a Pixies fan. And unfortunately, I had no idea who I was watching at the time. Mm-hmm. Doug and I were sitting right near you guys. I thought you guys were on the floor. No, we were on. We were on the risers too. Like similarly, like in the first couple rows of the risers. Okay. I remember seeing other pairs of people because, like you said, you paired up, and so you know it's high school, so there's all these groups of friends. But it was kind of funny because when it was time to get tickets for you too, okay, let's see who your friends are. You know, like <laughs> you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> things got awkward because if you had a friend, like you had to pair off. I just remember Doug and I are like, well, naturally we're going together, right? You know, yeah. So who else is going? Like you guys <laughs> yeah. can pair off. You we're going to meet up there. Yeah. <laughs> but those people leaving after the Pixies, I remember that too. Because yeah. they were in the last row of the floor section. So they had floor seats. They had better seats than us. And I remember watching them. It was almost deliberate, like a statement. That when the oh, yeah. Pixies were done, they stood up and walked out. I remember thinking, those people are so cool. You paid, yeah. which was a lot of money oh, back yeah. then. You paid a lot of money just to see the opening the band. opening band. And you didn't even care to stick around for yeah. this corporate It wasn't thing. like, I'm going to kind of check this out. It was like, right. done. Yeah. Pixies, last note, we're out. Yeah. And then they walked up and left. Four of them. There were four of them. Yeah. I didn't even think about the ticket prices. Oh, yeah. But they, yeah, like they paid. It was the equivalent of, and we're not going to do the math right now, but I think it was the equivalent of paying now like over a hundred bucks for a ticket. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Like it was mm-hmm. a big, big deal. Meanwhile, the Pixies are playing and I'm like, you go, you want to go look at the t-shirts? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I went out and bought a t-shirt. I do remember feeling like the Pixies, they were a little out of place. Yeah. They just, yeah. you know, they're not a Coliseum band. Oh, no, absolutely. Because yeah, it kind of didn't make sense. The show itself was... Uh, up until a few years ago, the the best show I'd ever seen. Oh, yeah. Um, he called the president, remember? Yeah. That would have been Bush, Bush right? Yep. First Bush. Yeah, he's calling the president, which he probably really wasn't calling the president, but we thought he was calling the president. <laughs> yeah. And we were like, oh my gosh, he's calling the president. And then Monday came, 
And we all wore our T-shirts oh, yeah. that we thought were so unique. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and everybody had on a yeah, U2 T-shirt. Yeah, the same T-shirt. Yeah. Gaudy, ugly. It was like the cover of, yeah. the, of the album, which does not translate <laughs> well to a T-shirt. <laughs> Did you see them, Matt, when they came? Not on this tour. Yeah. No. For whatever reason, in my mind, I didn't think about them touring on this album. Uh, I'd forgotten about the Zoo TV tour. I think I melded Zoo TV and pop together, yeah. mm-hmm. and I thought that was the tour. This next song is the song that on MTV was everyone's introduction. So no one had heard any tracks of U2 before this. And if you think about the last thing you've listened to was With or Without You off Joshua Tree, <laughs> you know, and then you hear this, you could see where it, it made quite an impact. younger and you're listening to this today it may sound like oh that doesn't sound that revolutionary and it's just hard to describe the impact that this had both from what you're hearing but also from what you're hearing from this band bono described the fly being four guys cutting down the joshua tree i guess the one downside is it also gave us the fly persona yeah Yeah, that's right which is one of those uniquely bono things that can easily make fun of yeah i think he still does that fly persona even to mm-hmm. this day at the times. Big, the big rock star. The big rock star yeah. and the glasses, the big wraparound shades. Yep. And I bet the other guys were like, yeah, good. You're you're really diving into that role there. Bono. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and then it, it grows into that McFeesto. He's got yeah, all that's these what I was, different. I was like, what was, that was Zeropa, right? When he kind of came out pop? with that guy. Yeah. 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 Pop, I think it was Pop. Okay. Was, was, yeah. yeah. Either way, what started as a really cool idea, and even back then, when he's doing the fly, you're like, okay, that's neat. What? Yeah. You know, at first, yeah. at first, became through the 90s to where it's like, just stop. Yeah. <laughs> stop right. with all of this, you yeah. know? Right. Well, rumor on the street, yeah, some guy just told me outside when I was walking in, um, <laughs> that uh, the fly character came about because of all the criticism he was getting about all the rattle and hum stuff about the self-servingness and the mm-hmm. ego. And so he, mm-hmm. that's sort of what came out of that. He was like trying to sort of make fun of that a little bit, I right. think. And you're right. It was, it was great at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, right. And then the other guy showed up and like, what? <laughs> Can you imagine being in a band with such a personality? Cause you don't get to be as big as you two without Bono. Right. But oh, yeah. walking in the studio one day and being, you know, this high school friend of yours and you're like, Hey Paul, his real name. You know? <laughs> He's like, no, it's Bono. Yeah. And you're like, hey, Bono. No, it's The Fly. <laughs> okay. Um, hey, The Fly. Oh, have you not met me? I'm McFeesto. It's like, good grief. Listen, I'm just trying to get your lunch order. <laughs> what do you want from Panera Bread? <laughs> Thanks to our sponsor, Panera Bread. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that McFeesto loves Panera. Oh, man. Bread bowl. <laughs> bread bowl soup. Yeah. Can you imagine that devil McFeesto guy like doing a Panera commercial? <laughs> That'd be incredible. Eating like a broccoli and cheese soup out yeah. of the bowl. <laughs> With an Irish accent. <laughs> 
unfortunately, we're out of time and we don't get to discuss mysterious ways. <laughs> oh, I'm so whoa, sad whoa, about whoa. that. <laughs> Man, I'll just say quickly that I've never loved that song, but also it was everywhere. Yeah. They just overplayed that video so much with that belly dancer and Bono. And I mean, even today, like on the 90s alternative satellite radio stations, that's probably the one U2 song that gets played more than any other. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, it's, I liked it when I first heard it. You know, I, I appreciated it for what it was. But yeah, Matt, I mean, it just it got so overplayed. Uh, I guess the one good thing is it introduced Edge to his future wife. Since, she, right. since she was the belly dancer. That belly dancer. And yeah. she belly danced um, on the, the uh, anniversary Joshua Tree tour. One of the videos was of her yeah. still belly dancing. And Edge is screaming at everybody in the audience, Stop, Stop looking at my wife! <laughs> That's my wife! Uh, all right bono's about to unleash yet another persona on you unless you are able to take a song off of octung baby so jeff let's start with you if you had to take a song off this album what would it be i've been thinking about this all week and it's been stressing me out (laughs) um i gotta tell you it it flip-flopped between several songs i'll even say one was on the chopping block again great song but i just kind of feel like it was too safe i think it appeased adam and larry and appeased the other guys but anyway so i think i'm gonna go with love is blindness uh that last one there's a lot of like pain in that because it was sort of when the edge was going through the divorce and things like that but to me you know those like old hymns in church where you would actually you know sing out of the book and Mm -hmm. it just it was the same thing the same lines just kind of but you just switched out a couple words Mm -hmm. and just kind of droned on and on that's what love is blindness kind of it just so that's why i would i would i would cut it off fair enough what about you matt i would probably take trying to throw your arms around the world oh Oh, man I feel like it, it wants to go somewhere and just never quite never gets got there. there. Maybe it needed like another, like a, a bridge or something. But for me, it's just, it's a, it's a little bit too monotonous yeah. for me. What about you, Matt? Mysterious ways. <laughs> <laughs> it may be overdone, but it's just ruined for me. Yeah, I don't love the feel of it. Mm-hmm. And those others that, that y'all mentioned, I still love. It was tough to remove a song. Yeah. For me, it was just, that was the one that didn't make it. Yep. Jeff, this is one that you and I have talked about for years and years, so it seemed like a great fit. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It was awesome. Thanks for listening, as always. uh, Be sure to check us out and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Finest Work Songs. Thanks for listening to Season 2 of Finest Work Songs. And we'll see you next time when we drop a deuce. theme song is by my brother's band medium heat uh, they're a fantastic band go check them out you can find their stuff at mediumheatbandcamp.com thanks so much <laughs> peace out